Today's sermon, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, this message is uh, a, a prayer that uh, Paul prays for the Ephesian people, and in this prayer, I think we're going to learn some things. I've, I've titled it uh, Paul's Prayer for uh, Maturity, and uh, this is uh, a prayer where we're going to learn some things about how to pray for one another. And we're also going to learn some things about what spiritual maturity is all about. But uh, let's pray, and then we will uh, open the, the Word of God together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight with open hearts, open ears, and open minds to hear your truth from your Word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be thoughtful and insightful in our reading of your scripture tonight. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts so that we can know the truth and know what we must do about the truth. Lord, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So the other thing I want to uh, just warn you about before we begin tonight is that I am going to sing a little bit tonight, so, and it's, it's going to be bad. So I'm just warning you now, but it's going to be short, so it won't, it'll, don't have to worry too much. But anyway, our passage from Ephesians tonight, it's, it's Ephesians starting with verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. This is the second time in the letter, there was one in, in the first chapter as well, where Paul tells the Ephesians that he is praying for them regularly, and also tells them a bit about what, uh, what he has been praying for them. And, you know, when I read the prayers in the Bible, I'm often struck by how different they are than my own prayers. You know, I look at the type of things that Paul prayed for, the type of things that Jesus prayed for, and, you know, my own prayers that there'll be nice weather for my picnic or that uh, I'll have a safe trip when I drive from place to place seems a little weak in comparison, right? But... But, of course, it's okay to pray for the simple things in life, too. And God does care about those things, and God wants us to be coming to him and talking to him about the basic day-to-day -day things in life. But our prayers need to get beyond that. If that's the extent of our prayer lives, then we are not praying the way that the Bible wants us to pray. So my hope is that in studying this prayer in Ephesians, we'll learn something uh, about how to make our prayers more like this prayer that Paul talks about here. So, so let's read um, the first uh, couple of verses here. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So the first thing that you notice about this prayer is that Paul says that he kneels before the Father. And there's something more significant here than simply his posture when he's praying, right? God is not primarily concerned with whether we're standing or walking or sitting or kneeling on the outside when we pray. The important thing is to have an attitude of kneeling. So what's an attitude of kneeling? 
Well, first, kneeling shows humility and respect for God. See, sometimes we emphasize the, uh, the love and friendship of God and, uh, and the familiarity with God to such an extent that we forget just how awesome God is. And, 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 and we emphasize that prayer isn't that hard. It's just talking to God. As if talking to God was no big deal. But this is God that we are talking to. The God who is described in the Psalms like this. Psalm 97, first few verses of Psalm 97, it says, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people's see his glory. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we are coming to in prayer. He is truly awesome in the old sense of that word. You know, we don't use the word awesome quite as much as we did back in the 80s when I was a teenager. Everything was awesome and we talked about awesome. But it's still common enough and of course, um, you know, just a couple of years ago, there was that song that's about to be stuck in all your heads. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Okay, that was it. That was the singing. Sorry. Um, so when, but, you know, when we say something is awesome, we usually just mean it's pretty cool. This is a good thing. But, but when we say that God is awesome, we're talking about something a lot bigger than that, right? God inspires awe in us. And awe is that feeling of reverence and wonder and even fear that you get when you see something that just goes way beyond the ordinary experience. You see something just hugely impressive, it gives you that sense of awe. Um, if something is awesome, it means that when you see it, your jaw drops open, your knees get weak, and you're at a loss for words. You're just like, oh, 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 look at that. And I think the closest thing that I've experienced to true awesomeness recently was when I was in Hawaii a few months ago with my family. And we went and did this thing where you get to swim with manta rays. And so when you, when you do that, you, you're, you're laying in the water, kind of floating on the surface with a mask and a snorkel. And they have these, you do it at night, and they have these lights that attract plankton to come to where you're, you're floating there. And then the manta rays come to eat the plankton. So, um, so as you're, you're laying there, you're floating there, these mantas, which are about 10 or 12 feet wide, so they're, they're huge, twice the size of my arm span, and they're, they're, uh, they're attracted to, to, to the plankton, and they swim and do loops underneath you, getting the plankton. And they come within about five or six inches of your face as you're laying there. They're so close that sometimes they actually brush up against your belly as you're floating there in the water. It is an amazing thing. And their mouths, which are about 
they're bigger than your head. These huge mouths are just wide open the whole time as they're scooping up uh, plankton. And um, that was awesome. There was that feeling of just incredible um, uh, impressiveness and, and even a bit of fear as these giant animals are swimming around you. Um, and, and, and it's just this uh, sense of wonder. And, and God created manta rays. They're awesome, but how much more awesome is God? And talking to God in prayer is an awesome experience. We are approaching the great and powerful creator of the universe. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. That's the God that we are coming to in prayer. And yes, that God loves us. And he wants to have a personal relationship with us. And the Bible even calls that friendship. We can be friends with God. But that doesn't mean that we should think of God the way we think of our other friends, right? We serve an awesome God, and we should approach him uh, in prayer with a proper sense of awe. So that's the first part of that idea of having an attitude of kneeling when we pray, is that we need to have that humility and that respect and recognize who it is that we are talking to. And the other implication of kneeling is the earnestness of Paul's appeals here. Kneeling is not a casual posture. A kneeling attitude shows a strong desire that God will do the things that we're asking him to do, that he will answer our prayers. And we're going to see in a minute here that, that, that the things that Paul is praying for are big things. And he believes that God can do what he asks. And so he is on his knees, fervently appealing to God to grant his desire. And now I've already said that we don't really need to get down on our knees when we pray in order to have a kneeling attitude in our prayers. God is not primarily concerned with the position of our bodies when we pray, but rather with the attitude of our hearts. However, there is something to the idea of physically kneeling before God. Back when I was in seminary, my Old Testament professor, Dr. Younger, uh, when he was telling us about the temple and about the tabernacle and about all the different things that uh, God uh, taught people through all that in the Old Testament, he was always telling us, um, almost every day in his class, he would say, God uses physical things to communicate spiritual truth. God uses physical things to communicate spiritual truth. And so God does care about our posture in prayer. It's not as primarily, uh, what he's primarily concerned about is not what your 
physical position is, but, but he's not indifferent to it. And also, kneeling can help us to keep a proper mindset during our prayers. It can help us to concentrate and to, to be focused on our prayers. So occasionally, don't have to do it every time you say a prayer, but occasionally it's a good idea to actually get down on your knees before the Father. Now, the second part of the introduction to Paul's prayer uh, is a, a statement about who Paul is praying to. He's, he's um, said that he's on his knees before who? The Father. The Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, there's at least two things that Paul is trying to say with that phrase. Uh, first, he's emphasizing the relationship that God has with his church. Jesus taught this in the Gospel of Luke, where he also put emphasis on the fatherhood of God as the reason for God answering prayer. So in, in Luke uh, chapter 11, Jesus said, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The point here is that God is our loving parent, and he wants to give us good things. He wants to answer our prayers. When we approach God in prayer, we need to recognize that this great and awesome God uh, is, uh, that, uh, is our Heavenly Father, and he wants to grant our requests. And the second thing there in that phrase um, that Paul brings out about God here is the, the, his superiority to all things. So that's the significance of this statement about everything in heaven on earth deriving their name from him. See, names and naming uh, in the Bible, that carries a lot more significance than it normally does uh, in our thinking today. For instance, when God brought all the animals to Adam so that he could name them, that was a meaningful thing in which Adam was demonstrating and God was uh, uh, giving Adam the authority over all of the animals. He was uh, expressing his dominion over them by naming them. And here, God's whole family, that is all that he has created or has fathered, is seen as under God's dominion. So Paul wants to emphasize to the Ephesians that that uh, when he prays for them, he prays to a big God, a God who is above any potential competitor. So now as we, as we move past the introduction to the prayer and, and see the content of the prayer, what is it that Paul prays for when he comes to God in this way, when he's kneeling before the Father? So verse 16 and verse 17, it says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the theme of power is all through this prayer, that idea of the power of God. I titled this sermon, Paul's Prayer for Maturity. 
but I almost called it Paul's prayer for power. But I decided that it's not just power for power's sake that uh, Paul's praying for here. He's praying that people would have power so that they can become spiritually mature. But, but that idea of power and, and of God's power uh, working in the lives of people is a, a major theme of this prayer. And the first aspect of maturity that Paul prays for here is that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the people that he is praying for. So that idea of uh, Christ living in somebody's heart, it's a fairly common uh, way of putting things in Christian language. We talk about Christ uh, coming into people's hearts. um, And uh, often we explain the salvation experience as uh, asking Jesus to come into your heart and Jesus comes and dwells in the hearts of people. And, and, and this is the verse where all that language comes from. Um, there, there actually is no other place in scripture where it talks about Jesus dwelling in your heart in this way. This is, uh, this is the origin of that, uh, that terminology. And, and, but notice here that, that what Paul is talking about when he's praying for Christ to dwell in people's hearts is not for them to have an initial salvation experience, right? He's writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus who are already saved people. So uh, what he's praying for is the continual experience of Christ living in his people. But what does that mean for Christ to live in your heart? Well, uh, we get some uh, explanation and, and, and clues on that in another verse from the Bible in the book of Galatians, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Christ to live in our hearts means Uh, that our life is no longer our own to live as as we please. Instead, Christ has control of our hearts. Our emotional and spiritual center, our heart, is now the home of Christ. And he decides our priorities. He guides our lives. He directs our hearts. He rules our desires and goals and thoughts. So do you see why Paul prayed that the Ephesians would be strengthened with the power to realize this ideal in our lives? Because this is a big prayer request for God to truly dwell in our hearts and to take over the core of our beings. And we do not have the ability to live like this by our own power. You can't just decide you're going to live for God and, and through your own determination and effort make it happen. Um, We need the power of God to experience Christ dwelling in our hearts. And that's what Paul is praying for those Christians in Ephesus. And that's what I want you to pray for me. I want to grow to yield more and more of my life to Christ. And I need your help as you pray for me 
and as we pray this for one another. Next, the, the text moves on to the second thing that Paul prays for. Starting in verse 17, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts... Oh, sorry. Uh, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So our normal prose has failed Paul at this point. He can't uh, do it. So he brings in kind of poetry here. And he says, uh, uh, what, what he means when he says he wants his readers to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, he just wants, uh, he wants them to understand that Christ's love is really big. It is a gigantic love that he has for us. Now, as far as I know, in, in ancient Greek, the, the language that Paul's writing in here, they don't have as many, quite as many great words for describing really big things as we have in English, right? We have a lot of really creative uh, words for very large things. So if Paul was writing this in English, he might have gone with how humongous is the love of Christ or how gargantuan is the love of Christ. But in Greek, he resorted to just listing all the dimensions, how wide, deep, tall, thick. And, and, and uh, so what's so important about knowing the size of God's love? Why does Paul fall on his knees before the Father to ask that the Ephesians would have the power to grasp how big God's love is? Well, it's because the more we are able to grasp that wonderful love for God, the more it will transform our entire lives. The more we know the love of God, the more the love of God will influence us. Paul said in, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, when he was talking about the reason that he risked his life to face suffering and persecution in his missionary journeys, here's what he said about it. He said, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Christ's love compelled Paul. He knew the love of Christ. He knew something of how big and wide and deep and, and everything it was. And, 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 and he was compelled by that. He was empowered by God to grasp the size of the love of Christ. And he mentions here in 2 Corinthians uh, the greatest example of that love, Jesus' sacrificial death for us. The idea here is that God loved us so much that he died for us, we should love him enough to live for him. So we need to follow Paul's example here, and we need to pray for each other that we would know the love of Christ and that we would therefore be compelled to live for him.
Then the climax of the prayer comes in the third section of content of Paul's prayer, where it says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And this is one of the places where the, the wording that the title for our sermon series uh, comes from, a people full of God. This wording is uh, of being filled with God. It only comes up as that wording a couple of times, but that idea is all through the book of Ephesians. Another way to describe this goal is spiritual maturity. People who are spiritual mature are people who know the love of God so that it motivates their hearts and who are full of Jesus. And Paul's prayer is that they would be filled up until they are full of God. And there's two phrases in Ephesians uh, in chapter 5 that I think help us understand what that means to be full of God. One is in, uh, in Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says to his readers that they are to be filled with the Spirit. Right? That's a phrase that comes up a number of times in the Bible, that people should be filled with the Spirit. And it means to be controlled by and empowered by the Spirit of God. It's really quite similar to the idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts that we just saw a few minutes ago. And then the second phrase that Paul uses in chapter 5 that helps us to understand what he means to be filled to the fullness of God is the first four wor words of chapter 5, where he says, be imitators of God. Being filled to the fullness of God means being like God. It means treating people with love the way God would treat them. It means sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. So those two verses from chapter 5, the Bible simply tells us to, it just, it just instructs us. It says, be filled with the Spirit and be an imitator of God. The idea is very similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there you go, right? Um, do you want to know what God's will is for you? Be filled with the Spirit, imitate God, and be perfect. Simple. But of course, God knows and the Bible knows that this is not possible for us. And so in addition to giving us the instruction that we are to do these things, Paul also prays for us and, 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 and asks us or asks God to do these things for us. Um, notice that uh, he is saying here uh, that we should be filled to the fullness of God. It's not go fill yourselves up. We are being asked to be filled. So God is the one who is helping us to make this happen in our lives. We don't do it on our own. And so this passage is not just an instruction on what we're supposed to do. It's not just a description of the goal that we're working toward. Here's what you, here's, you know, the, the, the goal is to be an imitator of God, have Christ dwell in your heart and all that. It's it, it is a prayer that God will be at work in your life so that you can make progress 
toward this goal. Because without God's work in your life, we will never accomplish this. And I want to be clear about one potential misunderstanding here about what it means to know the love of Jesus and to know uh, all these things about God. We're talking about something much more than knowing the academic facts about the love of God, right? To be full of God is more than having a head full of knowledge about theology. Um, when I arrived in South Africa as a missionary, I was at age 30, I was pretty well educated in the teachings of the Bible and in solid Christian systematic theology, right? I had a four-year bachelor's degree in biblical studies from Taylor. I had just finished my master's degree in New Testament studies, capped off by writing a 150-page thesis on the topic of Christian maturity. And I had just been hired to be a Bible college professor. So I, my academic knowledge was pretty, pretty broad. But when I arrived in Johannesburg, I met another missionary named Bruce Britton. And Bruce, he'd, of course, he'd also had some education, and he had a lot of experience as a missionary. But I had more academic training, and I probably could have scored higher than Bruce on an academic assessment of systematic theology and knowledge of uh, the teaching of the Bible. But let me tell you, Bruce was way ahead of me in terms of spiritual maturity. He was way ahead of me when it came to really knowing the love of God and being full of God. His life was a much better reflection of the mature Christian than mine, and I had a lot to learn from Bruce and other people like him. And this prayer in Ephesians is for us to know the love of God, to really know it, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is a knowledge that doesn't come from books, not even from the book. To gain this kind of knowledge of the love of God, you need God's help. That's why this is a prayer for the power of God to strengthen you to accomplish this. So let's pray this kind of prayer for each other. Let's seek this kind of depth in our prayers. In addition to praying for our daily bread, as Jesus taught us, and the other basic things of the day, we need to be praying for the power of God in one another's lives. We need to be praying that we can grasp the incredible love that God has for us. And we need to pray that Clearwater Church will become more and more a people full of God. So let's pray that right now. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come to you with an attitude of kneeling in awe of your greatness. And we ask that you would strengthen us by your power so that we can understand and know your love so that we can be more and more full of you, that your spirit would control us and that we would be better and better at imitating you. We ask this, our Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.